Welcome to this episode of the Magazine Debrief. Uh, I'm John Severs and we're joined as usual, as ever, not boringly, but as ever, by Dan Worth. Hello. And Gwanya Hallahan. Hello. And we have a special guest. Well, is she, is she a special guest or is she like a regular? Is she sort of a, is she a podcast meme? Is she, is she? What do you call it in TV shows when you have a, have a guest star that comes back? Um, returning guest star yeah that's yeah that's what she is who was the returning guest star in in friends well janice janice let we'll call her janice from now and you can you can wait and find out who it is but our janice is coming up in this podcast too uh, and we're talking about the 12th of um february issue which is another stunning issue of tears please make sure you subscribe and uh let's get started Okay, so feature one, we are talking not to Janice from Friends, actually, are we, Gronia? No, no, Janice wasn't available, and plus she didn't like the feature, so I decided to go with somebody different. No, and I don't, we don't even know Janice's real name, to be fair, do we? No, no, we don't. Pretty poor research from free journalists. Anyway, <laughs> tell us what's coming up. So, Amy has written the piece today. Um, Amy, Amy, you're assuming everyone knows who Amy is. She's not that familiar to the podcast that we can go... You know, she's not like Boris or or Pele yet. Or Cher. Or Cher. So, Amy. I'll start again. So, this week, we've got the lovely Amy Forrester, who's written us a piece all about effort. So, we say this all the time in schools. You've got to put more effort in. We give effort grades. We talk about effort in lessons and effort at home. But when we're talking about effort, what are we actually talking about? What do we really mean? And Amy digs into this and looks at the science behind effort and what it actually means and whether or not you can even measure it. And she comes to some interesting conclusions. And I was very lucky to catch up with her this week. Thank you, Amy Forrester, for talking to me today about your, your piece that we have in TES. You are the cover. I am. It's very exciting. We do love it when you're on the cover. I enjoy it too. So tell us about what your piece is about this week. So it's all about what effort means for schools and for teachers and ultimately for students because it's something that lots of schools talk about. It's something that we discovered lots of schools report on. Anecdotally, it's something that I know as a pastoral leader, students are often told by their teachers, you know, they'll say they need to put more effort in um, or when I speak to parents or to, to kids about how they're doing, they'll often say, I just need to put more effort in. And the piece is really about how that is, is a fallacy that isn't very quantifiable or helpful or useful. And ultimately, it's something that is often misdirected in that kids have to know what they need to be spending their time on. So as we dug around the evidence and, and talked to some experts about, it became quite clear that effort is something that needs to be taught in terms of what strategies students are using because you can put all the effort in in the world but if you're doing the wrong things that won't make any impact on learning so the piece kind of focuses on that and what we need to do in schools to be more helpful to students and their learning. I guess effort sort of becomes a, a euphemism for time for kids like when they say I need to put more effort in to them they're thinking I need to spend more time on it. Yeah, absolutely. And it that often isn't the case because it's it's not necessarily the amount of time that is spent on something. It's whether that time is spent doing something that's helpful. Like you say in your piece, it's not always quantifiable, is it? 
No, not at all. Um, and you can take, you know, different students. And I'm sure every teacher can think of cases that would, would fit this, these examples where you've got two students, one who works and puts hours and hours in um, and one who, who doesn't. But the one who doesn't sometimes goes on to do better. And it, it, you can kind of look at that and go, well, you know, why is that happening? And chances are it's because student A, the one who was spending hours and hours and hours, was not using that time effectively. So the measurement of time, whilst we can measure it and students feel clear on what that means, it still doesn't actually help us that much. Now, when I was reading your piece, that part really stood out to me and made me think because the idea about like how much effort you're putting in and what you're getting out of it, this idea of efficiency. And I found out a fun fact for you. Go on. Guess what animal is the most efficient animal? Oh, I'm, I'm really hoping it's like a sloth or something. No, of course it's not oh. a sloth. Have you seen them move? No, no, it's not a sloth. It's a jellyfish. Interesting. Yeah. I'm not expecting. Not well, expecting that. So jellyfish, they put in the mil- minimal amount of like effort, like energy, but they get the yeah. most movement out of it. So it's clever little oh, wow. to be more like jellyfish, don't we? Because yeah, we do. If, you all, you, you, if you've got two students using two different strategies and one is more time-consuming, but they both get the same output, you surely want the shorter, shorter one, don't you? Oh, absolutely. We don't. You know, you don't want to. You don't want to have to choose something that's inefficient. So yeah, be more jellyfish is clearly the message that we need to take. So when you think back to your own school days. Which subject do you think you had to put the most amount of effort into? Oh, that's an interesting question because it. what should I put more effort into? <laughs> um, probably something like math that just didn't come naturally to me. And had I put some more time and effort in, I might have been better at that. Um, what did I put effort into was the things I enjoyed, yeah. um, which was English, funnily enough. Yeah, I've, I've had first-hand experience of your maths limitations. I yes, think it's... into your five-times table. Yeah, let's, do, let's start with the two. Let's start at a realistic level. <laughs> but I am also awful at maths. I'm taking the Mickey out of you, but actually... I'm just, just as bad. I, but I think I put a lot of effort into my maths lessons. I always wanted to do well, but it didn't always result in good marks. Yeah, and maybe that's where we need to be a bit more efficient so that that effort does result in the good marks. Yeah, I think, yeah, PE was probably my, the least amount of effort I put into any subject. Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it, was, it was lucky if I went, to be honest. So uh, <laughs> probably should have picked that, actually. I just went for subjects that um, <laughs> I took at GCSE. I'm going to phrase it that way. <laughs> oh, but that's the thing with English. Like, you can put lots of effort if effort means like time but then I no, I think I did more than that like I loved reading about different literary theory like theorists and I liked reading like a range of and I used to like going out of my comfort zone so like reading authors that I knew I should read even though if at first I found it difficult like I persevere with it and it's you know because because when you love something you can see the reward in it can't you absolutely and that that's almost part of the the problem is trying to find what kids do love um, and getting them infused and motivated so that they actually do want to put that effort in and they can see something valuable that comes from that. It's very difficult to motivate people. 
to get to the point where enough effort is going in for them to see that reward and then for them to carry on motivate like to get that to that point where they're self-motivating that's tricky isn't it really tricky and at the end of the, like we are dealing with teenagers as well <laughs> and it that's even harder I think as adults we can probably recognize when we need to put a lot of effort into something or you can recognize I'm working really hard at this and I'm making some progress in it but not like I'm not there yet I need to persevere like say but then you try and do that with a teenager and that is harder to do um, as lots of parents are discovering now with uh, trying to do that from home that's certainly something that we talk a lot about as pastoral leaders <laughs> it's hard as yeah it's hard. Hard. So, yes, I, Amy's here referring to my continuing nightmare that is homeschooling. <laughs> Today we yeah. have Ivy Rose feigning illness rather than doing any English work. And she likes English. But in the end, she did write a story. So that was right. good. Wrote, wrote, yeah. um, the enormous turnip from the point of view of the turnip. Cool. I like it. He didn't want to leave the ground. Did he not? No. And all of no. us doing... Um, bossy verbs in English today and she was okay. blown away by the fact that I knew they were called imperative verbs wow like you know stuff like oh my god mom you know something yeah yeah I do, all that. I do. though she didn't, never trusts me even things on spelling she doesn't trust me but yes that's the homeschooling trying to watch them see that putting the effort in is worth it at the end I think the younger they are that's more of a challenge yeah, absolutely. And it, it's it's really hard for them to sustain as well because they've got so much demands placed on them, even in normal times. Um, it, it's hard to do with, with children, but that's that's what we're there to do. It is. And we enjoy doing it. Well, you enjoy doing it. I enjoy watching you do it. Okay, well, yeah, I enjoy watching you try and do it at home. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining me today, Amy. And I'm sure we'll hear from you again soon. Wonderful. Thank you. So that was a fascinating discussion between Gronya and Amy on on that feature. Um, do you think you put enough effort into it, Gronya? I think due to my interesting fact that I dug up about um, jellyfish, it was definitely, definitely effortful. But the whole point of the feature, is it not, is that effort is, 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 is not what we're after. I oh, know it's not really though, is it? It's effort is... Efficiency, isn't it? So It's about efficiency. It's about not asking for more effort. Of course, effort is important, but it's not about asking for more effort. So... Yes, uh, catch up with that feature this week. Um, it's it's a really good read, and there's some fantastic illustrations with that one too um, from our art team. Shout out to Alex Morgan for for those designs. Whoop, whoop. Feature two this week, we're talking about men in primary, and actually, I'm talking about men in primary. Um, so this feature is by Raina Barker, and I went to a school probably right at the start of my time at TES and there was a, a teacher there doing a PhD study in how men behave in primary schools. And his research, which is still ongoing, uh, otherwise we'd have featured it and he didn't want to give anything away at this point. But, you know, it's, it's, I think this might be a lifetime research project for this teacher. His research found that because primary schools were so overwhelmingly female, when a male teacher entered that, environment they became quite um stereotypically male so they they overemphasized their maleness or they overemphasized their femininity so they didn't go in there and behave as they normally would for the most part obviously some teachers male teachers did but men i became quite you know 
not aggressively male, but I would say alpha male. So they emphasize their maleness. So they, they, they love their football. They, they went a sport. They, they were quite laddie. They were quite flirtatious. Um, or on the other end, they became quite feminine in their behavior and sort of became very, uh, sort of mimicked the behavior of the more feminine members of the female staff. Um, so I asked Arena to look into this to see if, you know, these small findings, which were in the West of England could be, um, were replicated anywhere else or if anyone else had found the same. And, and she found that it was to a degree. So there's quite a lot of research up to around 2012 where, where men did exhibit these behaviors in primary, in primary schools. But Arena also talks to, um, a teacher who runs the men in primary Twitter feed, which is a great Twitter feed. And we've done some work with them in, before. And he argues that actually since the Me Too movement, since gender's become a bit more fluid, since we've acknowledged that gender is a spectrum, um, he's, he's found that there's less pressure, essentially, to be a man's man or an incredibly feminine man. Uh, he says you can, there's much more scope for being who you are. And I think it's an interesting topic to look at in, in several respects, really, because I don't know about you, but in my primary school, that the only, the only man was the head teacher, actually. And he was an overtly manly man. <laughs> yeah. Well, my, my primary school, it was my memory. I might get this wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that the, the lower two years, you know, entry year one and, and so forth was, was female. Then the next teacher up was female and then it was male, male. So it was the, the female teachers did the earliest years and the male teachers did the upper years of the primary school. And particularly the headmaster, I mean, again, I'm, I'm basing some memories up to the age of about 10, but I think you're right. I think he, they, they sort of definitely had a sort of more of a male presence and they wore ties and they were very much the sort of discipline enforcers. Whereas I seem to remember the female teachers as being more caring and more sort of touchy-feely. But of course, they also were the teachers I had when I was younger. So my memories, they probably would be anyway. So it's a bit hard to say, but it, the, the features are a really good example of that, isn't it? Like, do men sort of feel the need to become more male and become the disciplinarians and become the ones that run all the sports because that's kind of what they should do. And that offsets any feelings of, oh, I'm working in somehow what's perceived as a, a feminine role, particularly in certain communities. I can imagine certain parts of the country, they probably don't bat an eyelid at a, a male teacher in primary and other parts of the country. It's probably, it's probably a bit of a, does feel like a stigma or you get comments, you know, sort of, sort of funny, you know, comments from parents, particularly other male parents, you know. So it must be a difficult one, but I like the piece because it talks about how that seems to be changing a lot. And I think that's a good thing that maybe now in the more we're more sort of open to realize that you don't need to have these kind of really set rigid gender forms for your job you know it's it's quite reductive to think that being male and female could be summed up as something as simplistic as what your hobbies are it's you know that's not really like i think i think we're trying to move on from that aren't we and you know my my experience is very similar to you i didn't have a male teacher until i got to secondary school all my teachers at primary have been female it's interesting, isn't it? Because I've been into primary schools and I've seen both sides of this. Um, Graham Andre on the Isle of Wight made, you know, he, he was on telly with this gender neutral school and, and it was really impressive. And his whole thing was that exactly this, we've moved on from that. But I've been in other schools uh, where head teachers have told me that because of the lack of male role models in the, in the, in the community, they've actively sought male recruits for the school to, to bring some male, you know, influence into it. And 
you know, I said, well, why would you do that? And he said, well, it's not about men creating a male role. It's just seeing different role models of men, different ways men can be. And he was very keen to ensure that, you know, he had male teachers that weren't just a stereotype, that, that the kids in that school could see different types of man, if, if you know, as reductive as that sounds. And I think we can get a bit squeamish when talking about gender. And I think actually, you know, you could criticise him for, for conforming, but also he saw a need in his community as well. So I think it's an interesting debate point. You know, I think people should be able to openly discuss both a gender neutral school and, and the head teacher who is looking to represent yeah. different types of manhood. Well, do you, particularly if you think in primary, you do a lot of more sort of touchy feely things, don't you? More sort of arts and, and I presume things like cookery or baking or fun, fun things. You know, what I'm trying to get out of there. And if you're only doing that at female teachers and then a the male teacher to you becomes the, the strict, you know, teacher, that is going to give you, that's not, that's going to reinforce or, or, or create these ideas that all oh, men don't do these things. And actually, if you're a young boy and you, you're there with a male teacher and you're having fun doing something particularly creative that might be perceived in your household as, oh, women, uh, men don't do that. You know, men, men do this and women, women do that kind of thing. But then suddenly you're doing this thing in school. That might make you start thinking, well, actually, I really enjoy painting. Or I really enjoy cookery or whatever it might be that in another, you're not getting that at home. And that gives you that new sort of sense of, oh, I could do this. I'm, a, I'm interested in this. And that, that must be a better thing for a child to have that chance to just try something new with them. A diff, like you say, a different role model to do that rather than, you know, your Miss Honey types in primary school, which is what we love to imagine as the sort of ideal primary teacher. I've met some Miss Honeys, you know, mm. like it's amazing actually because you think it's a fictitious creation. But I, I've been to schools, especially when I was looking around for my kids, and just think, wow, that, she's, she's basically Miss Honey. This is, <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> it's, it's so weird that, that this thing that got created out of Roald Dahl's mind is actually mm. almost a, you know, almost a copycat of what exists in a lot of primary schools. But do they exist because they read Matilda and they, they grew up wanting to be Miss Honey? Though so her safeguarding is dreadful and I think somebody should investigate it. I mean, I think... You heard it fear first. Roald Dahl, <laughs> it creates safeguarding nightmares in schools, says Gronya Hallahan of the Test. Stolen that from Lauren Hampshire-Dell. She tweeted that recently. Mm, I think I thought so. Yeah, it's good. Uh, yeah, so that's a stolen idea. But I think we can all agree that a balance of genders in primary is really important. And, you know, my brother is a primary school teacher and I've watched him teach. And it's and now I'm thinking about what we've read in the article and what we're talking about now and wondering whether or not he's he like plays up his masculinity or if he's going more like playing on his femininity. I can't I can't decide. Do we not all do we not all do this to an extent? Do you think that's a thing there where in, a, in different environments we all dial up and dial down? And I appreciate it's probably exacerbated more in a, as a teacher in a primary setting. But I mean, if you walk into a room with a meeting and it's and you're a man and they're all women, or vice versa, I just feel like surely you adapt a little bit as a sort of social. You know, I'm sure a sociologist would talk about this with more authority and say, "Well, yeah, we do," and there's probably a term for it. And you sort of just just you know move the levels a bit, just depending on who you're sat around. And if I went to a football match with a bunch of my mates, I would talk in a different way. Dad would be all laddie. Yeah, like, I'd be all laddie. Right? And I'm a all right, boys, just get yeah. some beers in. Yeah. Well, that's it. Code switching. Yeah, Code I think that's what they call it. Um, I, I wonder if it's a problem affecting men more than women, though. Uh, are men tend to men tend to be more insecure about their masculinity than women about their femininity? You can tell me, Gronya. Oh, because I can speak for all women because we are just one. No, I'm just interested in your view. I'm just, in, there's no need to attack, you know. I, I could ask Dan about his femininity if you like, but. <laughs> I think, um, I think it still comes into that idea of like being a girly girl and 
people like to pigeonhole women into being girly girls and liking makeup and being this sort of this sort of version of a woman. And then if you're not like that, well, then you must be quite masculine. She's quite laddie. She's a she's a like it, it's that whole there's there's a um, spectrum of it. And I well, we grew up, didn't we, in that in the nineties when it was the ladette. That whole mm. movement of oh my god, these girls are getting drunk and and being loud. They must they're a ladette. And it's like what? <laughs> it was such a weird time looking back on the nineties. I mean. <laughs> You catch it on telly and you just... Do you remember it? That was like a thing. Like Was it Tara Palmer Tomkinson, was it? Mm. Wasn't it, girl? Not places wearing belts. Yeah. That, yeah. That was, a, that was a significant social moment. You look back and you think, well, that was normal. What were we doing? <laughs> like, you know, poor old Sarah Cox was on the front of the, the, front of the papers everywhere. I mean, how damaging. You were, you were a girl then, Gronje. How How was it seeing... It girls and ladettes and that that whole that whole dynamic. It was it was. Oh, do you remember there's a book called um, "Female Misogynist Pigs"? No, I do not. Misogynist Pigs. Do you remember that book? It was quite a significant book at the time. But it t- it talked about this idea that you know taking your clothes off and equaling that to empowerment was actually reductive, and that as a movement of, of feminism going forward, that probably isn't the way that we're going to get liberation or, or equality. And it's interesting, like, we, we look back at the things that were happening, and I remember at the time, have, you get all these mixed messages, don't you, that, you know, this is really good and really empowering, but these women are terrible for doing it, and we should all be mothers, and it's it, it's mm. a big old mess. I don't think it's much better now, but at least I think we're more open to having discussions about why it's not better. Mm. Well, I, I think it's, I think, because we perceive that we're now very advanced as a as a society. But if you think about it, we're only really sort of what 50, maybe 70 years now out of the prevailing dominance of the, the patriarchy, shall we say. And every sort of achievement by women during that point is still memorable, like the first MP, the first time a woman you know, did something notable. And, and only now that we're still grappling with the idea that that's the past, but, and we think we're beyond it, but it's actually still very much a living memory for a lot of people. And we've talked about that before. And I think that like so the 90s was a sense of like, probably the first time women could properly as a, as a whole, you know, the whole of their society could do what they wanted in that way for the first time. Because even like the eighties and the seventies were still coming out of what started in the sixties. And we're still going through that now. And now I'm sort of dialing back the other way. And I don't know, it's, it's a fascinating thing of like, you know, we think society's advanced, but it's taken a long time to get to where we are. And therefore there are lots of entrenched views that still persist. Everywhere. If we flip it then, you know, should we, have fo- should we now focus on, whether women are feel forced to conform to stereotypes in primary schools, if they are these female-dominated environments, do women, are women under as much pressure in that environment to be the girly girl or to take a typecast role of, yeah, this is the this is the career aspirational, you know, no. Do you know what bull. curse of Miss Honey is a real thing? And you hear parents discussing like how warm and how good a pe- how a teacher is with parents, and they. They judge the teacher, I think, more harshly by using that sort of barometer of like, are they soft? Are they friendly? Are they cheery? And I don't know. I think I think we do have a slight skewered um, expectation of what female primary school teachers should be like. I think that's true. And especially when it comes to aspiration, like if you talk to women who are female heads and you talk to them about their journey, it's very different to the male journey. You know, oh, I got my first job and obviously I look for a leadership job within two years 
you know, then I got to the top. And the man is, and, and the male, male primary te- head teachers tend to see this as, oh, it's natural. You know, of course I'm the head teacher. Whereas the female journey is very much full of indecision. And, or if it's not, they're like, obviously I had problems with people because they thought I was above myself. Well, you know, there's lots of couching of that journey to headship. And I think that that's one of the most dangerous, dangerous and damaging things that we have in primary schools is that we have a minority male population of teachers in primary, but, you know, I think it's something like 30% of them are head teachers. And you think, looking at it going, hang on, well, where's all, where's the career pathways for the women there? And <laughs> Women Ed, a uh, big shout out to them. They've done a lot of work in this area and um, equally on racial uh an ethnic minority representation, BAME, Ed, also have done lots in this area. And I think, again, it's changing. But back to what you said, Dan, we're, we're living in a time of transition, not in a time of destination. Hey, mm. that, that's an awful quote. That sounds no, so that's cheesy, a great, doesn't that's it? That's a great line. <laughs> oh, my God. It, looks like, it sounds like it should be on, a, on the front of a book that someone's paid for. I, I regret that. We won't edit it because this is a real podcast. Yeah. But <laughs> I, the cheese that just came out of my mouth. But, never mind. Never mind. But what was the it? point remains. The point remains, yeah. Let's leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so feature three. Uh, Dan, are you going to do this poetically, Dan? Uh, I'll give it a go. Um, live, is this, what would you call live poetry? Uh, la- was it? Lambs that learn to walk in snow. Oh, no. I, I do used to remember it off by heart, but... Um, Dan's quoting that, by the way, because at my wedding, uh, me and Dan are, are real friends, not just work friends. Uh, <laughs> um, Dan wrote, re- read that Philip Larkin poem, First Sight, at my wedding. And we're about to talk about poetry. So that wasn't a complete tangent, was it, Dan? It wasn't, although it was a slightly, slightly mangled attempt to really... I used to be able to remember it off by heart, but I've obviously forgotten. Um, yeah, this is a piece in the, in the magazine by um, a teacher talking about how she sort of introduced poetry to start her lessons and it's not poetry that they're going to study particularly as part of the syllabus it's just a way to get people more the pupils more enthused by just throwing them a sort of random poem each lesson and sort of saying what do you think about this do you like it do you not like it what's good about it what's bad about it and she sort of tries it and and the first time she does it she sort of worries and thinks oh are they going to go for this and actually they they love it and they really debate it and they're excited by it and they disagree and and obviously the idea i suppose that firstly doing something off script and, and off curriculum probably feels fun to, to people. So we've talked a lot about those little moments you, you sort of remember them when a teacher does that with you. But then also, I, you know, it must help in terms of getting them enthused in the subject as a whole. And, and it made me think, again, those sort of little moments at the start of a lesson where a teacher has that kind of maybe even like a 30-second window or a two-minute window where before they dive into the syllabus, they can use their, their own interests and enthusiasm for a subject to sort of try and pass that on to pupils is a really good opportunity and, and poetry is an easier way maybe but i was thinking i'm sure you know in biology or chemistry there must be good ways you can do this by showing a really interesting picture or a diagram or getting an experiment up on youtube and, and sort of showing what happens you know this is an amazing clip of you know you see the things where they put these they mix two materials and these amazing huge like foam explosions happens over like a whole garage you know a whole too much um, time on tiktok yard <laughs> I'm, I'm too old for tiktok so all youtube <laughs> what's wrong with youtube um but yeah, I just thought it was a nice piece. And I just thought, it, it, particularly remotely as well, in a remote lesson, you know, starting a lesson with something snappy and getting enthusiasm going is, is a good thing, I think, if you can, if you can get it right. I think, she, um, I think what she gets down to really is, is, is this notion of, not distraction, but an articulation of, of, of 
the, the situation we're in. And she, you know, she says she she started it really as sort of a bit of self preservation in the face of the boredom and the monotony of lockdown life. And the kids found it too. And I think with poetry, sometimes it's a deeply personal thing, isn't it? Because it's a bit like a musical taste. You know, you can't understand why someone else doesn't like this poem, but it, you know. How can you not like Arcade Fire? I mean, they're amazing. Someone else going, they're so boring. And it's a bit the same with poetry. And but I think if you find the right poem for you, it it can help you articulate something you're feeling in a way that you can't. And you get that sort of reflection from it. You get that sort of sense of solace. And I think that's what she was talking about, really. And you're exposing children to a really wide range of of poets and styles of poetry and forms of poetry. And I think a lot of the time you meet children in year 10 and year 11 or even six formers who study English and they say I don't like poetry and it's not that they don't like poetry they've just not come across the right poems yet and if you accept that you're not going to study the poem you're just looking at it just for the pure enjoyment of looking at it and that's okay then you can come at it in a very different way and you're right Dan you can you can apply this to lots of different subjects I remember when I taught media we I used to show my my students random um adverts at the start of each lesson or a title sequence and yet we did study those in the subject and we would you know it's important to talk about it and study it but sometimes it's just interesting to say I saw this and I thought it was really really cool like let's watch it can you see why I liked it can you see why it appealed to this person or this um do you remember the this girl can campaign that whole um like oh throw like a girl it was that like this is what like throw this ball like a girl and all the girls throw it like really feebly and it's like why do you think girls throw like that and it sparked really interesting conversations that moved far far away from the advert that we were looking at but you know it's it's nice to just take that time to look at something that isn't going to be assessed isn't going to be tested on but just invite your students to think about bigger topics it's such a sad thing that you were talking about some really important advertising campaign about girl you know that girl can and the only advert that popped into my head that you might have used was the tango advert where they slap someone around the face <laughs> and i just think my cultural references are way off being serious do you not remember you've been tangoed you remember but why would that make you think of this girl can because as soon as you said I did fun little adverts, my head just went straight to mm. yeah. He didn't mean he heard of disco can and thought of slapping tango no, advert. No, no, no. no. <laughs> he was big and fat, and you would never get away with that advert now. Could you imagine that advert going? Well, I remember in running around the primary school playground and people shouting oranges in people's ears, and people having to go home with like yes. burst eardrums because yeah. the advert was the guy just running around shouting oranges in people's ears. We were stopped from playing Ninja Turtles as well. Oh, I see. Because it got banned in my playground. British Bulldog was banned in our playground. This this is a proper 90s nostalgia podcast, isn't it? Actually, I, speaking of British Bulldog, I've got a, um, I'll, I'm going to tease it. I won't say who it is, but the next My Best Teacher podcast guest is a musical, a music legend in more ways than one. And they have a story about British Bulldog, which is very good. So not this Friday, the following Friday. Make sure Did you're you subscribed say to English him. or British? British Bulldogs. And, and British star? Well, I'm just going to say this person is a music legend in more ways than one and they have a good story about British Bulldogs. Uh, there you go. More next week. More next week. And is, does, does he or she do poetry? And do they find solace in it? Poetry is a big part of that podcast too. Uh, you see, we circle back. We're professionals we, we on this podcast. Back, yeah. we, we circle back. Circle away again and talk about playground games. We go can. On. 
Best playground game. Go. Um, red letter. What's that? Okay. Never heard of it. You stood on one person stood on one side of the netball court or like the, the playground and then everybody else stands on the other one. And the person standing on their own would say a letter. And if you've got that letter in your name, you can take a step forward. That is, that is. Well, you just randomly pick a letter. Sorry, John. I didn't... Randomly pick a letter and then whoever gets the other end first wins and then you will go back and start. Uh, and... Didn't the person just make sure their friend win? Mm-hmm. Well, d- yeah. One. Didn't, you know, you get your friend as the picker and you say, can you just spell my name out? Or is it, are we talking quite young kids here? Yeah, I don't know. So how do you, what's the sort of, why does the child choose a letter? Just because they, they're sort of not very good at language still, so it's a bit arbitrary what they pick. I don't know, you just pick a letter. I don't know, it, but why, like John said, why wouldn't you just get your friend and go G-R-A and you'd just be like, oh, I'm winning. Because you want to, you pick really random letters. So you would say like Z, but I had a Z in my name. If you said N, I took like seven steps forward. <laughs> I know some Irish spelling is a little odd to English ears, but I'm pretty sure there's not a Z in Gronya. No, there wasn't Fitzsimmons. Oh, you did surnames too. Jesus. Wow. Well, I, I, see if you remember this one, right? I remember you got a person to sit down and you all had to put your hands over their head mm. for like 30 seconds. And then you did that with your fingers yeah. and put them under their armpits and, and knees and you could just lift them right up into the air. We called that black magic. Yeah, I mean, what was that about? Yeah, because it was like a pressure point thing, wasn't it? And you'd put someone's he- fist on their head and then you yeah. smash the egg and then it runs down. Did you do that? No. I know what you're talking about, but we never did that, no. Well, on the, uh, we were, we were, we, Pat, my husband and I, are we watching US Office? Oh, okay. Yeah, I know the bit you mean. Oh my goodness, I thought it was just a weird thing that we did in my playground. Like... <laughs> But that was weird, that whole thing. It was some sort of weird voodoo going on in primary classroom, uh, primary should, playgrounds. We should look yeah. into that. We should get, if anyone knows how that works, tweet us, because yeah. I need to know about that. And I've got a vivid memory of, of, of picking up, his name was Fadi Camel, and, and he was, uh, he, 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 honestly, and he was Egyptian, and that was his name, Fadi Kamel. And obviously, <laughs> you know, in a, in a primary playground, that, that became something else. Camel, for example, was horrible, actually. Um, but anyway, we picked him up, and I remember we were all doing it, and literally we just almost threw him into the air, and we all just crumpled down. Oh, you can't! It's, that's, it's... We did. It happened. Honestly, it happened. Unless yeah, my the... brain is playing tricks on me. And then you... Yeah, yeah, you literally you get four just... of you, and you get like one at the knees and one, and one under the, the armpits. Arms. Yeah, yeah, in yeah. the armpits. I actually managed to pick anybody up. Oh, we did it all the time. You could. Maybe in my mind we didn't. And no, I, just I, I definitely think you're right, John. I definitely think that works. And I don't, but I remember like also how and why it works. I don't know. But I remember we did that in our school and people would lift up, off, you'd lift them way off the chair. And then another and everyone... good 90s reference. Did you ever watch The Craft? No, no. Oh, it was about like teenage witches and they do that in the film. Uh... They lift her up, but obviously that's because they're witches and they're performing magic. I'm not convinced that your primary school children could lift people up. Off. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna well, to do two shout primary teacher. Yeah, I think we need a, we need someone who understands the physics of it, and, and I need Faddy Kamel. If you're out there, Faddy, um, he only lasted two years at school, but among my group of friends, Faddy is like he's notoriously like we all remember him because we threw him in the air doing this, and he was fine with it. It wasn't bullying; like he was part of this, and you know, and if you're maybe out there, John's Faddy, head teacher like, could come in and verify whether or not this happened. There was no head teachers around. It was break time. We could do what we want back in those days: smash conkers, throw marbles at each other. Try and climb the fence into the electric uh, substation. <laughs> it, was, it was crazy, um, but yeah. So Faddy Kamel's out there. Faddy, please get in touch. I'd like to catch up with you anyway, but also I'd like to know whether we threw you in the air with some black magic in um, about nineteen eighty nine. 
How old was I in six? No, a bit older. 1992, I would say. 1992, fairly. Please, please get in touch. Well, we've gone wildly off topic from the piece I chose, but it just shows, doesn't it, how good Tez pieces are for stimulating debate and discussion. And then makes life. us all very confessional, I've, I've noticed. We you all, particularly. All, yes, I, I become very confessional. I, like, it's, it's my Catholic upbringing. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's what we have time for today, though. But we will be back next week. And can we give a quick shout out to Rob Webster, all round TA legend, who sent us a lovely message on Twitter this week. And Rob, appreciate you listening and appreciate your living legend. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief Podcast and want to read more of Tez Magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.